Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. It's good to see you. A special welcome to those online and our other campuses. Glad you're with us. If we've never met before, my name is Tommy. I get the amazing privilege of being the campus pastor here at West Dallas. I'm a little biased. I think this is the best campus. I apologize to the rest Kind of. Um, No, I'm really glad to be with you today. I'm thankful we get the time. One church in multiple locations to hear from the Word of God. Uh, This weekend is going to look a little bit different than normal. Uh, Over the past month or so, we've been working through the New Testament. We've been doing like a flyover. But this week, we're going to take a one-week reprieve, a break. And we're going to look back actually at a book from the Old Testament. Don't worry. This was planned ahead of time, all right? And I can prove that to you. If you have your study guide, if you could open up real quick to page 66... Page 66, you'll see something at the top of there. You'll see it says the word psalm. Uh, Psalms in the Old Testament. So see, I told you, this was planned ahead of time. However, I want you to do one thing for me. If you have a pen or pencil or something like that, if you could actually cross out the word psalm and write in the word lamentations. Lamentations. Cheery subject, right? If you know anything about Lamentations, here we go. Uh, no, this, was, this is intentional. Here's why. Um, lamentations is poetry. It's very similar to Psalms. Um, and actually, right in the middle of the book of Lamentations, there's three verses that are absolutely beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. Um, and they've meant a lot to me, and I want to share them with you. And so with that in mind, would you open up your Bible, your smartphone, whatever you've got, would you open up to Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24? Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. Um, before we dive into the context, the circumstances of the book, all of that, I actually want to read these verses to you. So you follow along as I read them. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Beautiful poetry, right? Uh, Three simple verses, very straightforward. Uh, God's mercy, his love, faithfulness. Everything you'd expect to hear from church, right? Um, But what makes these three verses so incredible isn't just the truth that's in them, and we're going to dive into that truth. But actually, it's the circumstances that surround these verses that give them real weight and makes them even more beautiful. Context matters, right? Well, the circumstance and context of these um, verses will further help us understand what the author is saying. So, what's going on around these verses? What's going on? Well, a few things. First, let's talk about the book as a whole. Let's talk about Lamentations. Now, Lamentations is a unique book in the Old Testament. Um, It was written by an anonymous author. We think Jeremiah wrote it, but we're not sure. And honestly, who wrote it doesn't really change the impact of what's inside of it. Um, But we do know this. We don't know who the author is, but we know what happened to him. We know what happened to this author. Um, You see, this author survived the Babylonian siege and destruction of Jerusalem and is now living in exile. Um, You can find that full story in 2 Kings 24 and 25. I'm not going to read it now, but the long and short of it is this. The nation of Israel had stopped following God. Uh, They weren't listening to him. And And in response, God allowed the Babylonian army to come in and destroy all of Jerusalem. It was gone. Finished. Uh, In fact, there was no more. This moment in Jerusalem's history is the most horrendous catastrophe up to this point. So this was a big deal to them. Why? Well, let me try to explain that. At the center of Jerusalem would be this shining jewel, the temple. 
The temple of God was right in the middle, and this temple was gorgeous. It was incredible. This was incredibly important. This was the cultural center, the business center, and the religious center. It's kind of like, take the Pfizer Forum plus Epicos Church plus the farmer's market all in one on steroids, right? That was the temple to them. This is where everything happened. In fact, every year, the entire nation would get together and at the temple for what was called the Day of Entonement. So what am I trying to say? The temple's a massive deal. It's a really big deal, but here's the issue. The people of God had forgotten their purpose. Israel had forgotten. They had forgotten that they were created to take God's name to the nations around them, and instead of living for that purpose, they stopped listening to God and only looked to him for comfort. And God, seeing the people no longer listen to him, allowed the temple to be destroyed, ransacked by their enemies, and in one fell swoop, the jewel of Jerusalem was gone. The temple was no more. Um, this was Israel's 9-11. I remember the days that happened after 9-11, and I know not everyone was even old enough to remember 9-11, which that was weird to talk to somebody this week, and like, I was one years old when that happened, and you're in marriage prep class right now. Okay, um, this is weird. But if you were around for 9-11, if you remember the days that followed, you remember there was confusion and sorrow, grief, even anger was setting in, and that's what this author is feeling. Not only did he watch his building fall, the temple fall, but immediately afterward, he became a refugee and lost everything with no hope of going home. Uh, To quote the Bible Project, Lamentations is a memorial to the pain and confusion of Israel that followed this destruction. That's what this book is. Cheery subject, right? Death, destruction, feelings. Uh, This is a little hard to process maybe, but track with me. I do think this book shows us how to process life's circumstances and emotions. When times are hard, when confusion sets in, when grief is the only reality we see, when it all seems hopeless or lost, when we're feeling confused, frustrated, wrong, joyful, happy, sad, anger, whatever emotion comes to mind, how are we supposed to navigate those? Where are we supposed to turn? You see, this is where Lamentations comes in. I think this book gives us some direction on what to do with those emotions and how to process them. And it does so by using poetry. All right, be real for a second. English class in high school, not my favorite. Not at all. Give me PE, give me gym class, give me lunch over English class, all right? Like that was my jam. But when it comes to English, not so much. However, as I'm getting older and hopefully more mature, you can ask my wife about that later, um, I'm really loving studying Hebrew poetry. Um, And this poem in Lamentations 3 is a unique one. It's what's called a poem of lament, a poem of lament. Um, Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't. So what is lament? Well, lament is three things. The first is this. It's a form of protest to God and to the people. Lament is a form of protest to God and the people. It's a protest of the horrible things that happen in this world that should not have happened. Um, A prayer of lament today may sound something like this. Father, kids should not be afraid to go to school. Jesus, I shouldn't be afraid to go to the grocery store. Lord, I shouldn't be afraid to go to a Bucks game and be concerned with being shot at. These are heavy. A lament is not light, and we have lived a not light week. They bring up real life issues to God. They're protesting or pleading to him. A, a, a lament is also this. It's a way to process emotions. It's a way to process emotions. We do this today. Have you read any blogs recently? 
I'm, I'm talking about the blogs that grieve with where we are. And, and they, they're trying to find hope in the darkness. They sound like this, God, this is terrible. Or, Lord, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's petitioning God, letting him into our thoughts and emotions as we weigh through the circumstances of our life. And a lament is also this, it's a place to voice confusion. It's a place to voice confusion. Uh, suffering makes us ask questions about God's character and his promises. We ask questions we don't typically ask, but our emotions take us into deep, real, tough issues. And here's what's cool. None of that, none of those questions is actually looked down by by Jesus or the scriptures. In fact, these poems almost restore a sacred dignity to human suffering. Remember, the author is hurting, like really hurting. He's in anguish because of the circumstances he finds himself in. And his only response, write a lament. He is wrestling with internal questions and emotions that are very real in this moment. What is he trying to say? He's trying to say this. The pain I'm feeling is worse than you can imagine. It's terrible. It's so bad, the only way I can describe it is through word pictures, through imagery. Uh, he does this. Check out Lamentations 3.4. Before we get to these verses, he says, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Who is he here? Well, he are the circumstances he's facing, the temple being destroyed. The he here is the enemy. We don't know who this is. It's not named. But it's insinuating that the pain that the author's feeling is so great that he's personifying his pain. And wow, <laughs> the imagery here, he has made my flesh and skin waste away. Uh, this is kind of crazy. That's the kind of emotional pain this author's in. When he thinks of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed, the only way he can describe it is rotting flesh. Man, that's some serious agony. Then we get to verse 7. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. So not only is this a pain immense, but there's no way out. No rescue is coming in the foreseeable future. This author's loss is so great, he does not see any light at the end of the tunnel. Verse 10, he keeps going. He says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. Wait, the pain is like a bear lying in wait? Uh, no bueno. That does not sound fun. That sounds terrifying. So not only is my skin rotting away, there's no way out, but now there's torment lying in wait even more around the corner? This is crazy, crazy imagery. And then we get down to verse 16, and he says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel. Oof. Another way to say it, uh, the author is saying, I would rather have my teeth dragged through a gravel parking lot than feel what I'm feeling right now. This pain is immense. He's trying to describe the pain of loss, the hurt, the grief as best he can. And his point, the circumstances that this author has witnessed is so incredulous, so immense that he is imagining the worst possible punishments he could go through so that we could experience this pain with him. Remember earlier when I said one of the goals of lament is to process emotions? That's what he's doing right here. He is saying that personified pain is rotting away my skin. There's more pain on the way. I see no hope on the horizon, and I would rather have my teeth dragged through a gravel parking lot than deal with the agony I'm in. But there's one more layer to this pain. Verse 17. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. 
this is lonely, painful. Honestly, this hurts me even just to read it. This author is trying to say, I see nothing positive. I'm struggling to find hope or something to cling to. And I want to pause for a second. Has there ever been in a time in life where you felt this way? That you felt this kind of agony? Maybe you're hearing these words and lamentations and it describes your current life situation that you find yourself in and you go, yeah, that about nails it. Or maybe this isn't where you find yourself right now, but has there ever been in a time in your life that you maybe felt trapped and more pain and grief was on the way and you were just waiting for it to jump you around the corner? Here's what's incredible to me. These human words of grief and anguish have now become a part of God's word, a part of the Bible, and he wants to use that for his people. God does not shy away from this kind of pain. He doesn't look at the author and say, how dare you feel this way? Instead, he leans in, and he listens. I think this is incredible. You see, uh, growing up, when times were tough, I had this unhealthy view of God in my head. It sounded something like this. God, I can't come to you right now. I'm not put together enough. Or it sounded like, um, God, the circumstances in which I find myself, you don't really want to hear about it. I don't want to bore you. Let me say this. That's not who God is. He wants to hear from us. He doesn't want to shy away from us at all. He wants us to be open and raw. You think that this author is being any less raw? He's describing where he is to God, and God wants to hear the pain that we're in. In my life, I can remember multiple times being left confused, angry, frustrated, and to quote lamentations, have forgotten what happiness feels like. I've lost relationships in my life that left deep wounds when they ended friendships broken. I've made decisions in my life that caused me to go down very painful roads. The grief of the death of my grandfather still lingers at times. I've lived through losing a job with no prospects while trying to make ends meet for my wife and kids. My wife and I have had to process a miscarriage that happened several years ago. See, there's been numerous points in my life that the pain of it has left me isolated, reeling, and grief-stricken. It hurts. And these words of the author, they're saying, I can resonate. Uh, maybe as I'm talking, there's a moment in your life that's coming to mind. Or maybe as you're hearing this, you're like, yep, that sounds like where I am right now. And if this is where you are right now, I want to say this. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. We are not meant to go through pain alone. Scripture actually tells us to bear one another's burdens. So please do not leave today without talking to someone. Uh, the connect card that um, was talked about earlier, if you want to fill that out, even if you can't talk to somebody, write that down so we can pray with you. You can drop that off at the end. I uh, mean, we want to pray with and for you. It's okay to not be okay. But that begs the question, what do we do when everything is not okay? Where are we supposed to put our hope? Well, check this out. This is the very thing the author says. Verse 21, he says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore, I have hope. See, Lamentations, verse 21 here, is the turning point, turning point for the entire book of Lamentations. In light of everything, before this verse, he's saying, man, in light of everything, the bleakness, the pain, everything I've been through, my skin rotting away, seeing no hope for the future, I've forgotten what happiness is. Then we get the turning point, he says, but this I remember. And the rest of the book is different. And so what does he say? And this is where we get these three verses. This is what I remember. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies 
never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. This is beautiful. The context adds so much more that in light of the pain, the circumstances, the author is reminded of who God is. And I think that's what he's trying to tell us. He's trying to say when things are going, remember who the Lord is. Now, we're at church, right? You would expect me to say something like, when you're in trouble, go to God. When things are tough, go to Jesus. You'd expect that, and it's true, okay? Um, But the author doesn't just say that. He actually gets oddly specific. He gets oddly, what about the Lord should we rest our hope in? What should we remember? Well, there's three things we should remember. And the first one is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now, in order to understand this phrase, um, we're going to double-click in on one word and, and zoom out and see how, what, how to unpack it to help us understand this phrase. And what is that word? The word is love. What's love got to do with it, right? What is it? Um, well, it's a simple topic, right? Uh, when I say I love something, when I say that, it seems simple at first glance, but it actually has a lot of wide range of, of meanings. There's different kinds of love, right? There's an, an intense affection for someone, like, like a, a brotherly love, or there's an attraction, a romantic love, like that what I have for my wife, or there's a personal attachment. Football has always been my first love. Go, pack, go, right? Or there's strong liking. I love b- barbecue wings. Or there's scoreless in tennis, 40 love. So that begs the question, um, what kind of love is God talking about here? What kind of love is being talked about? Well, different translations actually translate this, this verse differently. You get steadfast love, like we have in the ESV. You have loving kindness in the NASB. You have loyal love or even unfailing love. And as you read those, you're like, okay, there's some similarities, but there's also some differences. What's going on? Well, this book was actually written in Hebrew and was translated to English. And so when the, when the translators were trying to take a Hebrew word and translate it to English, there is no one-to-one equivalent. And so they're doing the best they can to describe it. And so a little trick, whenever you read the Bible and you notice quickly that there's multiple translations are doing it differently, it's telling you there's something going on in the original text. And so what is going on here? What is going on? The translators are basically saying this. We don't have an English version of this word that is comparable. And what is that word? Well, in order to describe that word, I'm going old school for a second, all right? We're going old school. No, it's not a flannel graph. If you know what that is, it's okay. Um, If you don't know, you have been blessed. Um, But we're going to go whiteboard, all right? We're going whiteboard. We're going old school. If If you've been in my small group at all, you know that I'm a whiteboard guy. I love using this. And here is the word. The word is chesed. Chesed. It's cheesed with one E, all right? I actually heard a guy preach a sermon once, and he called it Yahweh and cheese, question mark. I'm like, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about chesed. This is a Hebrew word. And in order to say it, you got to get that phlegm in there. Like, if there's no phlegm, it's not right. So chesed, I know you want to say it. So all right, say it with me. Ready? One, two, three. Chesed. Man, there's a lot of phlegm in this room right now. Um, Now, chesed, this word right here is used more often to describe God's love than any other word in the Bible. In fact, it's used over 250 times. We do not have an English equivalent of this word. So what does this word mean? Well, it actually combines three different words together in like a Venn diagram together to help explain. And without these three concepts, chesed doesn't exist. 
So what are these three? The first one is this, affection. Affection. There is an emotional component to chesed. There's an emotional component. It's the warm affection towards a person. Um, the best way I can describe it, my daughter loves to draw. She loves to draw. And when she draws she, that piece of paper after she's finished, she hands it to me. There's a warm affection that she has for that paper that probably no one else has. I love you, Hazel. I know you're in this room right now. All right? Why? Because she's created it, and it's important to her. And so there is, there is a warm emotional attachment to it. That's what we're talking about here. We are God's created beings. There's a warm attachment that God has towards us. So that's the first part, affection. The second part is this, commitments. Commitments. Uh, there is a contractual aspect to it. Based upon the affection or the emotion, there's a commitment. Have you ever heard of the word covenant? You hear that word used in the Bible a lot. It's a contractual between two people saying, this is what I will do. Based upon emotions, this is what I'm going to do. And then there's a third part to this, action. Action. Based upon the emotion I have, I've made a commitment, and therefore, I'm going to do something about it. In the middle, when all three are present, that's where chesed is. This is the type of love that God has for us. When it's described in scripture, there's an affection that God has for you. He's committed to you, and he's going to do something about it. Um, the best way I can describe this, there's a, if you've ever heard of the Bible Project, one of the main teachers on there, his name is Tim Mackey. And when he's describing chesed, he uses this illustration. He talks about, imagine a married couple that has been married for a long time. I'm talking like 60 years long. And imagine the wife comes to a place where her health begins to deteriorate, and she needs help. She needs care. And the husband takes it upon himself to be her full-time caregiver. That is actually a good picture of what chesed is. What the husband is showing affection. He's standing by his commitment and is acting upon that affection and commitment through good deeds. Now, if the husband only did two of these things without the third, that's not a true, accurate representation of chesed. If he doesn't care about her anymore, there's no emotional, but he's committed an action, we're like, nah, that's a cheap imitation. If he still has warm feelings towards her, but he's sleeping around, that's not it either. Or if he's like, you know what, I love you, I want what's best for you, but I'm not going to do anything. That's a cheap inversion. In order for chesed to exist, all three must be present. And this is the type of love that God has for us. Uh, the Jesus Book Story Bible, if you know what that is, it is one of the greatest tools for kids in reading the entire book's Bible. Actually, a lot of times when a person's a new believer, they're like, what should I read? I tell them, read this kid's book. It's called the Jesus Book Story Bible. In describing chesed, this is what it says. It says, God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. Let me read that again. God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, and always and forever love. Look, we don't deserve this. <laughs> I'm messed up. I don't deserve this. Nothing we can do can earn this. Simply God gives it because he overflows with it, and he promises it to us. So go back to our passage in Lamentations. What is the author saying here? He actually says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is the type of love that God has for you and me. When we're in the fire, when we're feeling at our lowest, when our pain is immense, he promises to love us in this way no matter what. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't run away. He meets us in it. And that's the first thing that the author wants us to remember is his steadfast love never ceases. 
The second is this. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies never come to an end. Mercy, interesting word, huh? Um, But what does mercy actually mean? Um, Different translations will either translate this as mercy or compassion. You'll see kind of the authors, again, are trying to describe this concept to us by choosing it for it. Well, the word is actually rachum. Remember, you got to get that phlegm in there, otherwise it's not true Hebrew. Rachum, R-A-C-H-U-M. That's that's the English translation of it. Um, And the original word here that is translated, the original word actually is wumi. Wumi, like the place where a woman carries a baby. Yes, that is what I said. Wumi. Um, So how do we get from womb in Hebrew to merciful or compassionate? Well, this is a deeply loaded word with a lot of feeling and a lot of emotion involved. It's actually inviting us to think of the tender feelings that a mother has towards a vulnerable child. It's helping us remember the tender feelings for a vulnerable child. You see, in order, um, in other places in scripture, when this comes up, in Isaiah 49, when Rahum shows up, it says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Or can a woman forget her nursing child that she has no Rahum? See, compassion and love is actually compared to, this is cool, a nursing mother. You see, in scripture, um, we hear that God has the love of a father, but he also has the love and affection that a mother would bring. The compassion and love of a mother towards their vulnerable child. That's what it's trying to say. His mercies are new. Um, Sometimes pictures are better than words in describing a topic. So in a second, not right now, I want to show you a picture. But before I do, I want to tell you a story about a little girl named Ella. A little girl named Ella. Um, Before my wife and I lived here, we have been here for about a year, we lived in Ohio. And um, there was this young girl, her name was Ella, she's three years old. She would be in church, she'd be running around. And you know those kids who are, you hear them before you see? That was Ella. She loved Peppa Pig, loved Peppa Pig. You'd hear her scream about it, she'd be running around, it was a blast. Well, her mom, Hillary, started to notice that Ella um, was starting to get headaches more often. She was starting to um, be a little bit more um, slow down. She would actually, at times, sleep all day. And if you know anything about three-year-olds, that's not normal. Um, Long story short, through a series of tests, um, Ella was diagnosed with what's called DIPG. And if you know what that is, if you don't, it's an inoperable terminal brain tumor. It has a 0% survival rate. Um, And unfortunately, a year after they found that out, Ella did pass. Um, I will not be forgetting Ella's funeral anytime soon. That was really hard. Um, This picture I want to show you in just a second, it's not a picture you see, it's a picture you feel. This picture is complicated. This picture is actually the last picture of Hillary, Ella's mom, with Ella before she passed. And I want to show you this picture now. This picture's hard. Because it is a mother holding their vulnerable child, knowing that the circumstances are bleak. This is the best picture of Rahum, of God's mercy, that I can come up with. You see, Hillary is holding her child, and she's holding her close, saying, I know what you're going through. And I hate it, but I love you anyways. This is the love that our Father has for us. When we're going through it, he doesn't shy away. He doesn't run away. He stands there with open arms and goes, I want to hold you. I remember talking to Hillary um, after the funeral, and I'm like, how are you getting through this? How are you getting through this? I can't imagine that. And you know what she said? (laughs) 
the love of God is getting me through. The love of God is getting me through. This mercy, this rahum, this is how God sees us, like a mother holding tightly to their vulnerable child. That is how our Father sees us. And this mercy, the desire for God to hold us close and to look at us like a nursing mother views their child, when we're in the fire, God does not abandon us. No, his rahum, his mercy never ceases. That's what Lamentation says. If you're in it, let me say this, he's with you. He doesn't abandon you. He's committed to you. and He's going to do something about it. And what he does is his mercy. So we find our hope in the steadfast love and his mercy. What's the last thing that we should find our hope in? It's this. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. If you can't tell, I'm a definitions guy. I like giving definitions. It helps me understand. And faithfulness, I would describe it this way. Faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction in an age of instant gratification. Faithfulness is a long obedience in the same direction in an age of instant gratification. There's a book um, called God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. Um, this is one of my favorite books, period. <laughs> uh, this book actually dives into chesed. It dives into rahum and as well as faithfulness, as well as who is God for real. And they dive into it even deeper than we did today. I cannot suggest this book highly enough at all. But I want to read something to you. The author, John Mark Comer, when he's describing faithfulness, this is how he describes it. He says, when life gets hard, so many of us just bail. When it's no longer easy or fun or novel, when it gets difficult or uncomfortable or boring, we just leave. We leave jobs, cities, churches, friendships, marriages. We just cut ties and move on. We're a generation raised on text messaging, making flakiness easier than ever before. God's not like that. He's faithful. He's the same. When this was written, this was written in 500 B.C., that same God in 500 B.C. is the same God in 2022. These characteristics have not changed. That's what faithfulness is. You see, God is not going anywhere. <laughs> he doesn't look at any situation and say, I'm out. He's been around for a while. He's seen a thing or two. He doesn't, he rather, instead of running away, what does he say? He leans in. He's with us. He doesn't leave. He's faithful. He's the same. He is who he is. So where do we find our hope when we're in the fire? We find our hope in the steadfast love of the Lord that will never cease. That his mercies are new every morning. And that great is his faithfulness. That sounds great, but how do we do that? How do we rest our hope in it? How do we do that? Well, actually, verse 25 tells us. Check this out. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. We wait. And let me be honest, I'm not a fan of that. Waiting is not what I want to hear. When I'm going through it, the, I don't want to hear the answer, wait. Really? Be patient? What? Like, God, you're, I'm hurting. Your people are hurting. We're in pain. Wait? God, we need you now. Uh, earlier, I alluded to situations in my life that I've been through. And to be completely transparent, when I was in those tough places, this is not the answer I wanted to hear. Wait? I didn't want to wait on God. I wanted answers. I wanted him to come fix it now. But as I look back today on those moments that happened yesterday and years previous, 
Let me just say, God's timing is perfect. And though I don't want to go through any of those things again, I'm incredibly thankful for the lessons I've learned about who God is through those hard times. You see, I've seen God, him, I've seen him take decisions that I've made in my life, and he's walked me through the pain and teach me more about who he is and use it to help me grow into who he wants me to be. When I lost my job and was trying to make ends meet for my wife and kids, I see now how the timing of that lost job allowed God to show me that he is my ultimate provider. He provided for my family in ways that I can only describe as miraculous. The miscarriage that my wife and I had was one of the hardest things we've ever experienced. Looking back years later, God has used that pain to help me empathize with those that I was unable to do so before and be able to show his love because I went through that. You see, at the end of it, God wants us to see him. He wants to bring us back to him, and he will use these circumstances to help us grow into who he wants us to be. Listen, I don't like pain. I don't like going through the fire. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. I don't want to do it, but I will say this. The fire refines. The fire refines. I'm a better follower of Jesus because I went through that fire. Who I am now is more like him because of what he put me through. Church, when we face the fire, what is our response? Is it to run away or is it to lean in and lament? Say, God, I don't like this. I don't want this. I hate this. I don't want to go through this. But then this I call to mind. I trust you. Your love, your mercy is always there. And I will wait on you. That's my prayer for us in this season, that we will wait on God because his timing is perfect. Let's pray. God, we wait on you. We know this is your church and we want you to refine us into who you want us to be. And God, we know that you love us so much that you want us to know your character. You want us to know who you are, not just so we have a knowledge of it, so that we can understand more about you and take this kind of love to the world around us. God, I thank you that your love is new every morning, that it's the same. It doesn't start over, but I continue to learn more about it and grow into who you want me to be. God, I pray for this room and the other rooms right now that are hearing this, that Lord, God, if there's those that are in here that are hurting, I pray that your love and your mercy becomes real to them. That, God, that they would see this and that they would know you in a deeper and greater way so they could fuller, full, to a more full extent, understand and, and dwell you so we can be. God, you want us to manifest your name or make your name known. And, God, so we make your name known. You are Lord. You are Jesus. And, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time we have together. We pray your guidance in all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.